Hi, this is Wilson Sayre from WLRN here. Before we start this radio special, I just want to let you know that a few things have changed in this story since it was first broadcast. We've put those updates at the end of the story as an epilogue, so be sure to listen all the way through. Thanks. You are listening to a WLRN special, Cell One, Florida's Death Penalty in Limbo. I'm Alicia Zuckerman. Cell One is the last cell Florida inmates stay in before their execution. Some get relief from courts and get moved out of that cell. Others go to the execution chamber. This hour, we're exploring the state of the death penalty in Florida. Nationally, the number of people sentenced to death has been steadily declining since the 1990s. The number of executions carried out is also down. But for decades, Florida has been bucking those national trends. 31 states have the death penalty. But in 2016, only five states carried out an execution. Florida was one of them. Over the past 40 years, only three other states have executed more people than Florida. And the way the state has handed down those death sentences also stands out. Questions about the process have landed the state's death penalty in its own kind of cell one, in limbo. Lawyers say some of the biggest shifts in Florida's death penalty have happened over the past year. These developments have also brought more confusion than there's been in decades. Over the next hour, we go into some detail about the death penalty process, how people end up on death row, and what happens during an execution. So this might not be appropriate for all listeners. Wilson Sayre introduces us to a man who found himself at the edge of life and death because of these questions. Mike Lambricks has spent more of his life on death row than on the outside. Lambricks is 56. He's lost most of his hair along with his once athletic body. Every day for the 33 years he's lived on death row, he's worn the orange shirt of a condemned man in Florida. He was convicted of a double murder in 1984. And at the end of November 2015, Governor Rick Scott signed his death warrant. This wasn't a surprise. Scott has signed more death warrants than any other Florida governor since Leroy Collins, who left office in 1961. Mike Lambricks was set to die by lethal injection in February of last year. He was moved from death row to death watch. Death watch is reserved for people who've been given their execution dates. The first thing you see is a board on the wall that says your name, your cell number, and your execution date. Every time you go in and out of there, you see that right there in writing just to remind you. We talk in an interview room at Florida State Prison, an hour outside of Gainesville. Just outside, inmates were mowing the grass. On death watch, inmates get a lot more privileges than death row inmates. You get to call your family. Until recently, social calls weren't allowed on death row. Lambert says the guards tend to be nicer. Even those that don't have a great reputation on death row show a more compassionate side on death watch. But death watch isn't supposed to be some kind of prison paradise where you can live out your final days in a more enjoyable setting. There's a practical side to it. Inmates are here so guards can watch over them more carefully, make sure they don't hurt themselves or hurt others. The fear is condemned prisoners have nothing to lose. You never forget why it's different. Everything about Death Watch is specifically structured towards what the conclusion is going to be. While Lambrix was on Death Watch, he had company, a guy named Oscar Bolin. Bolin's date came before Lambrix's. He was next to be executed. Bolin was in cell one. He's going through his routine, I'm going through mine. Preparing for their executions. Lambricks watched Bolin pack up his property in boxes. Putting it up at the front gate for pickup by his wife. Bolin had his final meetings with a lawyer and a chaplain. For Lambricks, this was like looking into the future. I'm 10 feet away, and so I'm really, you know, I can't get away. There's nowhere I can go. I put my earbuds on, and, you know, my MP3 is my escape. <laughs> As Bolin's appeals were denied, he became more anxious. Then the day before the execution, he goes ahead and shaves his own chest uh, because, you you know, it's either you shave it or they shave it. At 4 o'clock in the afternoon on the scheduled day in January of last year, the guards walk Bolin out through a door on death watch. That looks like just a regular house door, but when you walk through that door, then you go a little bit further, you go into the execution chamber. The state's two execution chambers are right next to Death Watch. In one, there's the state's electric chair, which hasn't been used since 1999. In the other chamber, there's a gurney with straps used for lethal injections. And as Oscar Bolin was walked out, Lambricks could hear people on the other side of the door, witnesses to the execution milling about for hours. 
I, I was pacing back and forth in my cell. The, the Death Watch cells are significantly larger than the regular cells, so I, instead of three steps back and forth, I actually got five steps back and forth down there. So anyways, I, for hours I was pacing, because I, I, was, I was somewhat anxious myself. Every little sound down on Death Watch during this period of time becomes somewhat amplified, like a thunderous roar. Every little whisper, you know, I'm straining to hear everything that goes on on the other side of that door. Listening for any news, like it's called off or rescheduled. Well, they didn't do that. All of a sudden, it got very quiet. No more whispers, no more talking. And that's when we realized. The execution was going ahead. Not long after, he heard people filing out. And it affected him. He'd gotten to know Bolin. They'd spent weeks talking between their cells, and then he's just down the hall during Bolin's execution. You know, I didn't sleep too well that night. But one of the things that really bothered me about the process after they killed him is that very early the next morning, they came in and they ordered me to get my stuff in my cell three, and I immediately got moved to cell one. I mean... You know, I just tell myself, what, you couldn't wait a day? You know, you just killed this guy. You couldn't just wait a day? So I got moved from cell three to cell one, and that brought my reality home. The reality of cell one. For the past four decades, this is the cell everyone who's been executed in the state of Florida has stayed in. That is the last cell. Were you scared at that point? Not scared. I was... It was the reality of it. Just a few hours ago, they killed the guy. And it's not just going into that cell, it's what that cell represents. I suppose it would be like going back into the doctor's office after you're already being told cancer, going through these treatments that gave you hope of maybe beating this thing and going back to the doctor and have the doctor instead say, no, sorry, it spread further, there's no hope. When you walk into that cell one, There's a part of you that even despite all the hope that you might still have, it takes that hope away. This was the second time Lambrix had been in that cell. He was hours away from his execution before, in 1988. Being in cell one changes you, he says. You have to wrestle with knowing the date of your death. You have to deal with that along with the other more mundane things, like divvying up your property. Like my MP3, my most favorite thing of all, uh, I wanted my sister to have that because she could relate to all the kinds of music I have. And, uh, and uh, you know, I wanted my son to have other things uh, that are personal to me, like my watch and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, a wallet that I had from way back. And, uh, you know, you don't have a whole lot, but you try to figure out what would mean something to somebody else because you want to leave a part of you behind with them so that maybe it won't be forgotten. Lambrix found himself making day-to-day choices based on the date of his execution. Should he buy new toothpaste or stretch what he has left? Watch the new X-Files miniseries on the TV in his cell? His date would come halfway through the episodes. He was fitted for his execution suit, dark blue with charcoal pinstripes, and a white t-shirt, short sleeves so they can insert the needle. All the while, Lambrix writes voraciously. When he talks, he tends to distance himself from his experiences. He says, you, not I. They make you feel like it's an easier environment, but uh, it's a paradox because you're kind of like getting a little relaxed there, but at the same time, you know you're one door away from the execution chamber. But in his letters and writings, we really get to hear what he thinks. He opens up in the first person. January 2016. Time flies when you're counting down what is expected to be the last days of your life. But as I awoke this morning, I realized that I'm now down to 25 days. I smiled as I remembered a song on my MP3 player by country music legend Johnny Cash called 25 Minutes to Go. It starts with the words, they're building a gallows outside my cell and I've got 25 minutes to go. building a gallows outside my cell. And I've got 25 minutes to go. Then in his southern accent continues, the, the whole town's, town's waiting just to waiting hear me yell. Just to hear me yell. I got 24 minutes to go. Well, they gave me some beans for my last meal. But 23 minutes to go. But no 
Nobody asked me how I feel. I got 22 minutes. During each minute of his 25 days, Lambrex is hoping his execution will get called off. The phone is like five feet in front of your cell, and you're just like looking at that phone, and there's a clock on the wall, and you're looking at that clock, because that phone is your lawyer's telling you you've got to stay of execution. You know, every moment of that clock is tick, 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 and you're looking at that phone just trying to mentally will it to ring. For Lambrex, a little more than a week before his execution, the phone did ring. The U.S. Supreme Court had issued a decision in a case called Hearst versus Florida. That's Wilson Sayre. You're listening to a WLRN special, Cell One, Florida's Death Penalty in Limbo. I'm Alicia Zuckerman. The execution of Mike Lambrix was called off last year because in the case of Hearst versus Florida, the U.S. Supreme Court found that the way Florida sentences people to death was unconstitutional. That triggered a domino effect of legal challenges. For almost a year, Florida has essentially had no death penalty, and people on death row don't know where they stand. What's been happening over the past year actually started back in 2002. The U.S. Supreme Court had ruled in a case from Arizona that only juries have the power to sentence someone to death, not judges. The same year, 2002, the Florida Supreme Court decided that ruling didn't apply to Florida, even though the state did allow judges to hand down death sentences. So nothing changed about Florida's death penalty. At the time, Charlie Wells was a justice on the Florida Supreme Court. I really am critical of the United States Supreme Court for not more definitively answering the question. You're always grappling with when there is a change in the law. How does that affect the cases that have been tried under the existing law? And that just sets up a conundrum when you're dealing with death. Then, last year, the U.S. Supreme Court decided, in fact, the 2002 ruling did apply to Florida. Florida judges can't hand down the death penalty. Only a jury can. So that court ruling meant Florida's death penalty has been unconstitutional since 2002. And that prompted two questions. First, how should the state rewrite the rules for cases moving forward? And second, What should happen to the 384 people who were sentenced to death under a now unconstitutional system? That first question. In March, the Florida legislature passed new sentencing rules, but those got thrown out by the state Supreme Court a few months later. The court said the problem was that the new rules continued the state's practice of allowing a jury to sentence someone to death without being unanimous. So now the legislature has to write new rules again. In the meantime, there is effectively no death penalty. Okay, so now the second question. What happens to the people who were already on death row? An answer to that came in the form of two decisions right before Christmas. About half the people on death row will now get a chance at a new sentence. Not whether they're innocent or guilty, but whether they'll be executed. That's between 150 and 200 people the others on death row will not get that chance. The difference is that 2002 U.S. Supreme Court ruling that started this whole thing. Inmates whose sentences were final before that decision, they're still sentenced to die. But this dividing line is being challenged, so things are still up in the air. Former Florida Supreme Court Justice Charlie Wells. This has been handled in a piecemeal way. The consequences of that are confusion. And it's unfortunate for everyone that is involved in the system. Confusion, when you're literally talking about a matter of life and death. Wilson Sayre picks up the story from here. Because Mike Lambrix was next to die when the U.S. Supreme Court decision came down, for the past year, all these questions have been at the center of his life. It is all but almost certain that I probably would be dead right now if not for Hearst. But at the same time, I really hate Hearst. This claim at the very most is going to do nothing more than reduce my sentence from death to life. I'm not fighting for life in prison. Nobody fights to die in prison. Lambrix falls into the group of prisoners who don't automatically get a chance to be resentenced. He's challenging that. But even if Lambrix and other inmates get a shot at a new sentence, it's very unlikely they'll get anything less than a life sentence. It's easy for those outside of, the, uh, outside of the circle to say, hey, great, you got a life sentence. Well, life is not 
that great. And so, you know, as I said, I'm conflicted about the, the Hearst issue. On one hand, it may very well have saved my life and given me more time to fight the fight that I really want to fight. The fight he really wants to fight is to prove his innocence. In 1984, at his second trial, Lambricks was convicted of murdering two people in Glades County, Florida. Prosecutors say he strangled a woman to death and killed her boyfriend by hitting him on the head with a tire iron. He hid the bodies and fled. Lambricks doesn't deny that he was involved in these deaths, but he said it didn't happen the way prosecutors told the story. Lambrick says he hit the guy in the head to stop him from strangling the woman. Lambrick says he didn't touch her. The prosecution connected Lambrick's to the death based on witness testimony. A woman Lambrick's was hanging out with was arrested later and offered her testimony. She later admitted she was having an affair with the prosecution's lead investigator, an allegation he denies and the court threw out. Before one of the trials, Lambrick says prosecutors offered him a deal, which he didn't take. Less than 30 years. Lambricks would have walked free years ago. So for 33 years, Lambricks has been trying to get the courts to hear evidence to support his story. This is the fight the Hearst decision may give him time to pursue. In the meantime, Lambricks has been moved off death watch. He's not in cell one anymore. He's back with the others on death row. But he still has a signed death warrant. It doesn't really expire. By tomorrow night, I could be right back down there on death watch again. Lambrix has tried to get back to as much of a daily routine as he can. He gets up between 4.30 and 5 in the morning. My day starts with a cup of coffee like every, every person's day always should. Then the news. Usually I go with ABC and then I'll channel surf. After that, around 9, he starts reading. While it's still quiet, because every, most everybody else around me is still asleep. Sometimes he does what he calls dreams and schemes, where he designs imaginary houses to get his mind out of the prison. Lambrix reads and writes prolifically. He's written or contributed to a half dozen books. He sends essays and updates to a friend who publishes them on a blog. There's no access to computers on death row. He corresponds with people all over the world. Some of them visit. Words seem to give him a kind of freedom. He gets to rail against what he sees as injustices. He regularly documents his life on death row. And he often uses words to lend poetry to his surroundings. Here's an excerpt from one of his blog posts. May 1st, 2010. When I look out that dusty window on the outer catwalk of the cell block, I can see that patch of green grass between the wings, and I try to remember what it felt like to stand barefoot on the grass, to feel the blades of grass beneath my feet, and how it would give way as I took each step. But it has been too many years now since I felt that touch of grass, and although I can still describe how it might have felt like, I cannot really remember or imagine how it actually felt to the touch. Sometimes he'll listen to music on his MP3 player. He likes Jewel and Train right now. Lunch comes sometime between 11 and noon. You know, the state food's not exactly, it's, you know, it's, it's not the Holiday Inn. So uh, most of us will buy things like, uh, like uh, ramen soups off the canteen with the spicy soups and uh, little packs of refried beans with jalapenos. And then so we'll take whatever, whatever we can salvage off the tray, you know, whether it be rice or noodles or beans or whatever, and then mix it all up and make a make your own little soup so and then of course to cook it you're not you know we obviously don't have stoves or anything so you have to run the hot water in the sink for a little bit to where it gets hot so uh, that's what I call my crock pot. After lunch more writing mostly letters. You're always looking for that next letter to come. Death row inmates get three showers a week. And then around eight o'clock is my tv time. I, I watch way too much tv you know. Prisoners have their own tvs in their cells. They have to plug in headphones to listen. And some shows, especially PBS nature shows, they watch together at the same time. And then guys will talk about them, you know. And, uh, and, and you know, throughout the day, from, uh, from noon all the way up until late evening, uh, you know, we talk to each other. They have these conversations through the bars, up and down the corridor. They talk about all kinds of things, politics, foreign policy, criminal justice. I've been saying for years they need to create a death row think tank because uh, you know, not maybe perhaps not always in the best of solutions, but pretty much every world problem has been solved on death row already. His mom usually visits on Saturdays. Lorita Yafoli sometimes brings one of his sisters or his stepdad. You know, it's just family talking. And when he gets smart mouth, I put him in his place. They buy him food from the canteen. Two cheeseburgers, 
an ice cream, potato chips, two pineapple orange drinks. Lambrix will fill them in on what's going on with his case, which can sometimes get hard when he's lost an appeal. And it's clear everyone's trying to put on a good face. Sometimes his family finds out more about what Lambrix feels by reading his blog. May 1st, 2010. After more than a quarter of a century now in continuous solitary confinement on Florida's death row, I've spent my share of time contemplating that inevitable question of whether I might have gone insane. And if I had not... His mom is constantly waiting to hear news about Lambrix's case or some other case that could impact his. She watches Florida Supreme Court hearings on the death penalty and scrutinizes their questions to see if there's any indication on how they might feel about the issue. So while she and the rest of the family help Lambrix get away from the routine of prison, his mom has felt more and more imprisoned. She and Mike's stepdad, John, moved from California to Florida to be closer to the prison. We don't make real close friends. We kind of stay more to ourselves with the family. Why, why is that? Because if we become real close friends with somebody and we have to tell them, we know we, they may walk away. In California, when we mentioned we were coming up here because of this, we had a lot of friends that kind of didn't want to be near us or didn't want to say anything, and they just kind of drifted away. We've had churches that say that they believe in the death penalty and all this, and we walked away. We tell the pastor, when we go in, we want him to know that this is what we have in our life what we're dealing with, and we ask them point blank what their views are. And some say, oh, well, I'm not, I'm not for the death penalty. But then when they get in the pulpit, they're saying something else, and that's when we leave. Uh, we haven't been going to church lately. And so Lorita and her husband have retreated into the family. And it's not like they're natural homebodies. John is a Korean war vet. He and Lorita used to be very involved in the VFW and the Disabled American Veterans Charity. Back in California, they chaired local and regional chapters. Lorita used to support the death penalty before everything happened with her son. I listened to the news and I listened, read the papers. But my biggest thing was anybody that injures a child. That was my biggest thing. If they hurt a child, they're not even human. So the death penalty should apply. But then I went and understood it more. She says she recognizes the pain and the anger of victims' families. But now that it's her son, she doesn't think the death penalty is the answer anymore. I just keep praying that he'll win. And I hope all of them win, really. If any woman has sat anywhere near one of her children and know that they're dying from something, then they can relate to what I'm going through. Because every time I see my son, it, it may be my last time. And that is a, rips out a, per, a mother's heart and part of her soul. Now she considers herself friends with a lot of the other guys on death row. She sees them during visits. She's friendly with their wives and girlfriends. But just like his family on the outside, Lambrick says on death row, people don't talk about their case as much. There's people I've lived around on death row and have known for 10, even 20 years now, and I don't know a thing about their case. Couldn't tell you. Do you think about that moment of execution at all? Oh, many times. I've actually had dreams of it. I think about it. I played it out in my own mind. I've written about it. Um, I think what troubles me the most about the process is that it just... Uh, it's just too easy. It's too far removed. I personally think that every execution should be televised live. To see what actually happens in that moment. I didn't watch it on TV. I went to an execution with somebody who could be considered the execution expert. That's Wilson Sayre. After the break, the day of an execution with someone who's been to more than 70 of them. We'll return in a minute with this WLRN special, Cell One, Florida's death penalty in limbo. I'm Alicia Zuckerman. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the WLRN special, Cell One, Florida's death penalty in limbo. So far, we've looked at the death penalty from inside the prison. And for those on death row, there aren't many places where the inside world and the outside world intersect. One place they do is in the execution chamber. 
the moment when the sentence of death is carried out. Here again is Wilson Sayre. John Koch is an eccentric guy. He lives in an old home that looks like it could double as an antique store, with old tin Coca-Cola signs and little trinkets everywhere. He lives in the middle of the state, right in between Jacksonville and Tallahassee, in a place called McAlphin, Florida. These uh, autopsy photos of a man who had his throat cut. And I said, you know, Sheriff, you got to get another color processor. These reds and greens are just way off. People around town humor him, but you can see there's always a little bit of hesitation. This is small-town Florida, and John Koch is a big personality. Is that the clerk of the circuit court? My goodness! He does exist! Koch used to be a freelance reporter for local newspapers. He's mostly retired now, but retains his press credentials to cover the one thing that he pretty much knows better than anyone else in Florida. He still files short radio stories for different stations about executions. At the Florida State Prison in Stark. At 7.26 p.m., the process to kill four-time convicted murderer Carell took under 10 minutes. At 7.36 p.m., the team leader announced that the lawful sentence of the state of Florida had been carried out. John, John Koch has been to 73 executions in Florida, every one since Ted Bundy in 1989. No, I don't get a thrill out of it. I get the thrill of trying to tell you the story. I have 30 seconds to explain something that's very heavy, very important, very emotional that's being done in your name and my name. My job is just to watch that execution and report on what happened there at that time, those 18 minutes or 12 minutes or 16 minutes or whatever. And I'm in there to give you the straight poop, baby, just the facts. For 28 years, Koch's been making the trek down to Florida State Prison in Bradford County. He's the most consistent pair of eyes in the witness room. It's rare for other reporters to go more than once or twice, much less 73 times. Koch knows what an execution's supposed to look like and what it's not supposed to look like. He's seen people catch on fire in the electric chair, and he saw the transition in 2000 from the electric chair to lethal injection. Koch keeps a folder full of notes, which meticulously chronicle each minute of each execution. At 9.31, the lethal drip of chemicals began. She had a nice color of skin on her face and arms and a downturned mouth. She closed her eyes at 9.32, opened them again, moved her head at 9.30. The process Koch documents is outlined in a procedure developed by the Florida Department of Corrections. At least once every two years, the secretary of the department has to review them and make sure they meet state laws and evolving standards of decency. There is no FDA testing of lethal injection protocol. The method the state uses to develop these procedures and details like where they get the drugs from, that's all a secret. The Department of Corrections declined our request for an interview. But former Florida Supreme Court Justice Charlie Wells says that secrecy comes from the fact that the death penalty is an emotional issue. Wells was on the bench as the state moved from the electric chair to lethal injection. That was immediately met with various types of issues having to do with the use of those drugs. And so that then began to be a political issue that the companies that made those drugs had to deal with. Concerns about boycotts or even violence against businesses that provide drugs used for lethal injection. Over the past six years, many European drug companies have said they won't allow their drugs to be used for lethal injection. Last year, Pfizer joined that group. It made the drugs used in Florida's death penalty procedure. The company declined to be interviewed, but in a statement said its products are made to save lives, not end them. So for the past year, Florida has been stockpiling different kinds of lethal injection drugs. On January 4th of this year, the Florida Department of Corrections made it official when it released its new lethal injection protocol. The state will be using one drug that has never been used in lethal injections. Another drug has only been used once, accidentally, in the botched execution of an Oklahoma inmate. This year, with all the legal challenges to the death penalty, things have been quiet in the execution chamber. In the first five years of Governor Rick Scott's administration, though, 23 people were executed. And because of the latest Florida Supreme Court decisions, defense attorneys suspect he'll start signing death warrants again soon. So now we're going to begin the, uh, yeah, 1221. So we're only starting a few minutes early. Back in 2014, when I first met John Cope, he developed a routine. The ride from Koch's home to the prison takes about an hour. Along the way, he stops at Subway, then at Starbucks, where he gets a double shot of espresso and a banana. 
We park across the street from the main prison building in what used to be a cow pasture. Where's the driest patch for me? Okay. Coke recognizes some of the people already there, a photographer who comes pretty often and a newspaper reporter who's been once before. But Coke is clearly the expert, and people defer to him on what to do. He hangs out, talks shop. In the distance, you can see cows milling about. It's a beautiful, warm spring afternoon. At about 3.30, the assistant warden, Jeffrey McClellan, comes out and makes a statement. Inmate Robert Henry is scheduled for execution tonight at 6 p.m. Robert Henry murdered two women in Broward County in 1987. Janet Thermidor was 35 years old. Phyllis Harris was 53. In the bathroom of the fabric store where they worked, Henry hit them on the head with a hammer and lit them on fire. He stole $1,300 from the store. Thermidor lived long enough to tell police who did it, a co-worker, Robert Henry. He appears to be calm and in good spirits. He did request a last meal consisting of red beans, rice, oxtail, pecan pie, ice cream, and orange juice. Inmate Henry did eat most of his meal. Um, He did have a last visit with family from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. yesterday. The quick announcement is followed by instructions, what reporters need to know before the execution. Back at 5 o'clock, please, you know, um, no pens, pencils, writing material, only um, just your car keys and an ID, all right? Before we load up into state vans, I have to pack my recorder away. Like the assistant warden said, you can't bring anything in, not even a pencil. Meanwhile, John Coke counts the number of reporters, which doesn't take long. Our chairs were full up until maybe two years ago, three years ago. And then we started having less and less and less to the extent that last year, or late last year, I said to myself, I could be here all, all alone, maybe, maybe one other AP reporter. On this day, five of the 12 spots for reporters were taken. At the entrance to Florida State Prison, a big gate slowly rolls to the side as you step in. It closes behind you before the next gate opens. We go through lots of gates. Each time one closed, I felt a little bit more claustrophobic. These are the same gates I'd go through two years later to interview Mike Lambrix. We're camped out in the canteen until right before the execution. Coke says you never know how long that can be. There can be last-minute delays or stays from the court. There's a welcome sign on the wall, like you'd see in an elementary school, with big bubble letters and a picture of Elmo and Cookie Monster, presumably for the kids who come to visit inmates in general population. The prison gives you a small pad of paper and two number two pencils. Coke recommends we dull the tip a bit before we start using them so they don't break and you have nothing to write with. Eventually, we're driven over to the far part of the prison, and we file into the witness gallery. It feels like a doctor's office. Coke is pretty matter-of-fact about everything. There is uh, one, two, three, four rows, uh, roughly 12, 13 seats apiece. The victim's family has a right to be in there, not the condemned. In front of us is a big window covered from the other side by a brownish curtain. There are roughly 20 people in the room, and it's absolutely silent. The reporters make the most noise, scratching those blunt pencil tips to paper. The curtain goes up, and there in the far room lies Robert Henry on a gurney, his arms strapped beside his body, ivy needles already in his arms. Some kind of white blanket is draped over him, covering the straps that secure him to the gurney. There is confirmation that there are no last-minute stays from the governor's office. At 6.02, Robert Henry has a few last words. He reads them from a clipboard one of the guards holds above his face as he lies on the gurney. He apologizes to his family and friends for their pain. Then he criticizes the state for using the death penalty. Hopefully, in the not-so-distant future, he says, this society shall truly evolve in its law and practice. If we do not chop off the hands of thieves, well then, why would we continue to be murderers to those who have murdered, he asked. Koch scribbles notes, which he reads to me later. At 6.05, the execution phase begins. Uh, Team warden watches and checks Henry move. Two people in the front row, the brother and sister of one of the victims, shake their heads. Die, says the brother. Henry is moving his lips. Praying or something. It was at 6.06. He was praying, we later learned from the assistant warden. His eyes blink. His lips start to move more slowly. He blinks less. Then you can start seeing the chest move at 6.07. It looks like Robert Henry goes to sleep. He continues breathing, though his breaths come more sporadically, staccato-like. And then that stops, and we wait. 
The victim's brother in the front row continues to cry and almost growls, it's too easy. A 609, some chest movement, short, shallow, uh, quick breaths. Coke watches intently, writes, checks the clock. Still no movement, 612, watches, no movement, 613, watching, looking over, no movement. At 6.15, a doctor comes in and checks Robert's pulse and looks for any eye movement. And then the announcement came at 6.17 that the sentence is carried at 6.16 p.m. The curtain goes down and we file out silently. Koch says this was a typical execution. It took 11 minutes for Robert Henry to die. That's Wilson Sayre. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we talk to the sister of one of Robert Henry's victims. You're listening to the WLRN special, Cell One, Florida's Death Penalty in Limbo. I'm Alicia Zuckerman. Stay with us. This is a WLRN special, Cell One, Florida's Death Penalty in Limbo. I'm Alicia Zuckerman. Cell One is the last cell inmates stay in before they're executed in Florida. One of the few things people on both sides of the death penalty argument can agree on is that in its current state, the death penalty is not working. Almost no one thinks the system in place now is the way it should be. A big part of that is just how long everything takes, whether it's for a death sentence to be carried out or to get off death row. In Florida, the longest living resident of death row has been there 42 years. Mike Lambricks has been there almost 33 years. This is decades of waiting for the inmates and their families and for the victims' families. Again, here's Wilson Sayre. It took almost 30 years from when her sister's murderer was convicted for Deborah Knights to find herself in the execution chamber watching him slowly die. She sat in the front row with her brother, Sal Cox, who cried throughout the 11 minutes it took to declare Robert Henry dead. I was in the back row, but I could still see him constantly wiping his eyes. His sister, Deborah, rubbed his back. Afterwards, across the street from the prison, she read a statement while her brother, Sal, was still crying. We, the family of Janet Cox Thermidor, will always cherish the memory of her life. Janet was a devoted daughter, sister, aunt, niece, cousin, and a friend to many. We will always cherish the memory of her life that was taken so soon by a demon from hell. Today should be closure, but how can you forget the brutal way in which two lives were taken without remorse? Our family would never be able to experience what life would have or could have been like had Janet been here. It's our prayer as a family that there, that one day we'll be able to forgive, but we will never forget. Deborah, her mom, her sister, and her brother, they went up and stayed the night not far from the prison. Only Deborah and her brother actually went to the execution. I wanted him to get the electric chair. That's what I wanted to see. I wanted him to suffer. He didn't suffer. I mean, you know, they stuck a needle in there and he went to sleep, basically. Deborah was the one who had to go to the coroner's office and identify her sister. Janet had been burned so badly she was almost unrecognizable. And that image and the thoughts of Janet's last moments are part of Deborah now. Deborah says if there wasn't a recording of Janet saying Henry's name before she died, maybe she would have reservations about the death penalty. Hearing her sister's voice, that was 100% confirmation that this was the man who murdered Janet. When you take somebody's life, I mean, why should you have your life? You've taken something that you can't give back. Just to take somebody's life, just to do it because you can do it, yeah, your life should be taken. I always believed that and still do. But what didn't feel like justice to her and her family was how long it took for the sentence to be carried out. That was 30 years Henry's family had the opportunity to visit, talk, and hug him. He was still breathing. We would have to go to a graveyard and look at a tombstone to visit my sister. During those three decades, her family went to all the appeals, hearings, and trials that came after Robert Henry's initial sentence. Former Florida Supreme Court Justice Charlie Wells believed these kinds of cases just took too long, and he tried to do something about that. I would remark on several occasions that the case would be going on so long that the only person that was still alive would be the person on death row. Every case went through the system at least twice, and usually three or four or five times. He says during that time, lawyers for the state, defense lawyers, and judges would change. There would be 
instances in which cases were just sitting in the circuit court for six, seven, eight years with no attention at all. He tried a lot of different things to unstick cases. He started a class that judges who tried capital cases were required to take. He streamlined the process for the paperwork going through the Florida Supreme Court. But these cases still don't move much faster than they did back then. Part of this is there's so many things an inmate can challenge. The drugs used in lethal injection, whether their lawyers did their jobs correctly, new evidence that could be looked at. Two years after Robert Henry's execution, a photo of Janet hangs by Deborah's front door. Oh my God, this is the old one. I don't think it is. The old photograph has fallen down in its frame. It's yellowed, and part of the image has peeled off. It's a formal portrait. Janet sitting sideways with her head held high and a big smile on her face. <laughs> so when was this photo? I think this is not long before death. And Deborah, she can look at this picture and not get upset. She says the execution almost three years ago gave her that freedom. You know, it's, it's finished. It's done. I don't have to worry about him coming back for appeals. You know, I don't want to have to hear about them, you know, in articles about him and whatnot. It's over. I've had the closure that I needed, you know. And, uh, you know, you get little memories, but then you can laugh. You can smile about it and say, oh, look at Janet, this and that. But at one time, you couldn't do that. Despite the 30 years it took, Deborah Knights would still rather have this flawed system than nothing at all. But that's not true for everyone. Name one good thing that comes out of somebody getting executed. To me, it just, it makes more victims. Darlene Farah is at the very start of the process Deborah Knights and her family are beginning to put behind them. Darlene's 20-year-old daughter, Shelby, was killed while working the evening shift at a Metro PCS store. This happened in July of 2013 in Jacksonville. Shelby's killer was caught and has confessed to the killing. And almost from the start, Darlene has been fighting against the death penalty for her daughter's killer. I've always raised my kids, two wrongs don't make a right. And Shelby and I have had many discussions about it. And she was against the death penalty? Oh, yeah. I mean, that that was something we always said. I mean, you're often, people in your position are often the argument. People say it's for the victims' families. They don't know what the victim's family goes through. She says other families who've had relatives murdered have gotten in touch, saying they support her push to prevent the death penalty in her daughter's case. She's heard from people who didn't realize that death penalty trials are often longer than non-death penalty trials. There are more appeals. It takes years or decades for it all to be over, like in Deborah Knight's case. Darlene just wants to be done with it. In Jacksonville, the case has been in the press constantly, and that's been hard on Darlene and her family. She wants the prosecution to offer a plea deal. She says the defense would take it. Two life sentences plus 20 years. No parole, no appeals. Every time we have a court date, I start shutting down. My son, we we all grieve differently. So it's like we're all trying to prepare ourselves and psych ourselves up I know I don't want him to get the death penalty, but it takes everything out of me when I look at him. I don't feel sorry for him because he was 21 when he did it. It was premeditated. He knew what he was doing. Over the past year, Darlene's daughter's case has gone pretty much nowhere. If you remember, there were two outcomes of the various legal challenges that threw Florida's death penalty into limbo. One was the question about already sentenced inmates, cases like Mike Lambrick's, the last inmate to be in cell one, the inmate who is next in line to be executed when the death penalty was put on hold. The second issue is until the legislature returns to Tallahassee in March, there are no rules governing how to sentence someone to death in Florida. Two and a half months ago, Darlene's daughter's case got pushed back again to January 24th. But since the new rules don't exist yet, that will mean another court date. Despite all of this, Darlene Farah is glad it's getting harder for people to be sentenced to death in Florida. She's become a sort of activist against the death penalty. She's spoken to legislators and nonprofit groups and says she'll keep doing that even after her daughter's case is resolved. My job will not be done till the changes are made. For Darlene, closure isn't going to be exacted by the courts. That will come between her and her daughter Shelby's killer. 
he wants to talk to me, and I wanted to talk to him, which that right there alone will bring me a little bit of closure. The lawyers don't think it's a good idea before the trial. Both sides still have a case to mount, and death is still on the table. I want him to know about the person's life he took away. I want him to know that if we knew him before this happened, what Shelby would have been wanting to do. For now, Darlene is waiting. That was Wilson Sayre. This is a WLRN special, Cell One, Florida's Death Penalty in Limbo. I'm Alicia Zuckerman. Again, Cell One is the last cell death row inmates stay in before they're executed. There are a lot of issues that are still up in the air about the death penalty. Who will be resentenced, who won't, and what rules will be written about how to send somebody to death row in the future. Mike Lambricks was next in line to be executed when his sentence was put on hold in February. That was just after the U.S. Supreme Court came out with a decision triggering a domino effect of legal challenges that suspended the death penalty in Florida. Here's Wilson Sayre. When Mike Lambricks arrived on death row, they gave him a sort of orientation manual. And on the back pages of that would have the fire escape plans. And so it actually had a complete layout of the cells and the execution chamber and how to go out the back door. And I kept that for years because it was funny. He was reading Dante's Inferno at the time. The epic poem chronicles Dante's journey through all the circles of hell. He figures out in order to get out, he has to go through each of the nine rings. And only once he gets down to the bottom of the nine rings, if he survives that, does he finally have that opportunity to go out some back door. In the ninth ring of hell, the punishment is to be frozen. Not totally dead, not totally alive. And that is so much of what death row is, because you are put into a state all but rendered incapable of moving and yet still conscious of everything, including your own imminent death being counted down. And so I have this little floor plan from the fire escape plan that shows there's a back door, just like in Dante's Inferno. All I got to do is get through that execution chamber, and then there's hope. Mike Lambricks is looking for a back door. So are lots of anti-death penalty advocates all over the country. Defense lawyers and activists have been slowly chipping away at small parts of the death penalty, like in Oklahoma, Alabama, Virginia, challenging things like the drugs used in lethal injection, the process for sentencing someone to death, what mental state an inmate needs to be in to be executed. Because of these legal challenges, it's harder for states to obtain drugs they know work for lethal injections. It's made capital cases go on longer. It's delayed appeals. All of these individual challenges have been mounting because the U.S. Supreme Court hasn't revisited the larger question since 1972. Is the death penalty constitutional? Not questions like, is this one part of one state law constitutional, but nationwide? Is the system for sentencing and carrying out a death sentence cruel and unusual punishment? So people fighting the death penalty have been sort of working in state-by-state technicalities. And it's been effective. Last year, only five states executed an inmate, the fewest executions since 1976. One of the reasons that there's been so few executions is these legal challenges have put the death penalty on hold, not just in Florida. Former Florida Supreme Court Justice Charlie Wells says, we can't keep going like this. The law can't be wishy-washy. We have a system which is made up of men and women, and so it's a fallible system. But it's a system that uh, has got to look toward finality because the reason that people have faith in the judicial system is because there is an implicit understanding that a decision will be made and carried out. This spring, the Florida legislature will be writing new rules to reinstate the death penalty. It can choose to resolve some of these issues. For those already sentenced under the old system, some, most even, may be resentenced in the coming months and years. Others will be fighting for that opportunity. In Florida, the death penalty remains in limbo. You've been listening to Cell One, Florida's Death Penalty in Limbo, a special production of WLRN News. You can find a lot more at our website, wlrn.org slash cell one. 
This hour was reported and produced by Wilson Sayre, editing and production help by me, Alicia Zuckerman. Thanks to Teresa Frontado, Terrence Shepard, Tom Hudson, Madeline Fox, and the whole WLRN news team. Special thanks to Jan Ariens, Ava Brillat, and Craig Trochino. This is WLRN News. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Cell One. In the months since we first aired this story, a few developments have happened, and there's still a lot in limbo. First, the death penalty is officially back on the books in Florida. As one of its first pieces of legislation this session, the Florida legislature did pass new rules about how to sentence someone to death. That brought the state's rules in line with the latest state Supreme Court decision. The second update concerns Mike Lambricks. He lost his final appeal to have the Hearst decision apply to him, so he will not be one of the 200 people who get a chance to be resentenced. For now, Mike Lambrick's death sentence will stand, but other appeals are still possible. In a recent letter, he said he started to struggle with feelings of anger towards the system. He says he's not proud of that. He wrote, It's been my philosophy to not allow the negativity of my experience to become part of who I am. I've seen far too many here grow angry and bitter as the years pass, and it eats them up like a form of cancer. And that's not who I want to become. He says when he is rescheduled for execution, and he's pretty sure that will happen sooner or later, there's nothing he can do except choose how he'll respond. He says he plans to go on a hunger strike when that happens. The final update is that Shelby Ferris' case is over. This is the 20-year-old Jacksonville woman who was killed in a Metro PCS store in July of 2013. After three and a half years, her mother, Darlene Farrow, was successful in convincing the state attorney's office to take the death penalty off the table. In March, James Rhodes admitted in court to killing Shelby and pled guilty to murder, armed robbery, aggravated assault, and possession of a firearm by a felon. He'll be in prison for the rest of his life. Here's Darlene Farrow. I feel good because I feel like I saved another mother's child. I saved a life. That chapter is over, you know, and it's time to move on. Before Rhodes was taken to prison, Darlene did get the chance she wanted to sit down with him and talk. I wanted to sit at a table face to face and talk to him, not in front of no cameras. I didn't want the conversation recorded or anything. Nothing that's ever happened throughout these four years ever gave us peace. What gave my two children and I a little bit of peace was being able to sit down and talk to him. She says she's forgiven him and would like him to forgive himself. People tell me I'm glowing again. <laughs> I have that glow in my face again. I'm, I'm glad it's over. Of course I'm glowing again because I'm out there doing something positive. I'm, I'm focusing on the good. She says her next fight will be for child welfare reform. Rhodes, her daughter's murderer, was raised in an orphanage where his lawyers say he was sexually assaulted. Darlene says his upbringing led to her daughter's death. She also wants to fight for victims' rights to help other families of victims navigate and understand the criminal justice system. She says this is the good that's come out of all her pain. You can read more about these updates at the website for Cell One, wlrn.org slash Cell One. Thanks for listening.